When I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. This is Paul writing at the the conclusion of chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. It's really, it's a prayer that he prays for all of the churches that he's planted, all of the Christ followers that will read the letters. This letter would have been circulated to all the churches that he would have been to, Colossians, Galatians, all of those things. He wanted them to hear this letter. Really, the amazing thing is it's not just a letter to them. It's actually a letter to all Christ followers for all time. And what does that mean? It's a letter for you and for me. Paul says, when I think of all of this, first question I have is, what is all of this? Right? What is the, the thinking of all of this? This is a prayer that Paul prays. It's the second prayer that he has in the book of Ephesians. The first prayer comes at the beginning, but he says, when I think of all of this, I can't help but fall to my knees in prayer. It's important to understand that Paul wrote this from prison. This is one of the prison epistles. And when Paul was in prison, he was chained to a Roman officer at all times. Like They didn't want him to go. Why? Because Paul had been in prison before and miraculous things had happened and the doors had been opened and the chains had miraculously fallen off their, their uh, arms and they've walked out of prison before. So the Roman government has decided that when Paul is in prison, we're going to shackle him to a Roman officer so nothing can happen. Get this image in your mind. Paul says, when I think of all of this, I bow on my knees and he's shackled to a Roman officer and he still bows on his knees while this Roman officer has to either get down with him or, or hold him in place or whatever the case may be, when I think of all of this, I bow on my knees and I pray to the Creator, and he has this beautiful prayer. But the all of this... See, Paul, when he says, when I think of all of this, he's reflecting on the, on the three chapters that he's written into his letter. Really what Paul is, is considering is this, because what he's written in the first three chapters are, this is who you are in Christ. This is the riches that you have in Jesus. And he says, when I think of all of this, when I consider the fact that I'm saved by grace through faith, the fact that I'm playing some small role in the grand plan of God, when I consider all of this, I fall on my knees because I so desperately want you to know, this is Paul's prayer, I want you to know, church, I want you to know, Christ followers, for all time, wherever you're at, who you are, who you are in Christ, and what you have in Jesus. And think, he's so overwhelmed and so overcome, the posture that he assumes is on his knees. Not a posture that God commands. Not a posture that the Holy Spirit speaks to Paul and says, if you're going to pray, get on your knees. No, no, no. It's just the appropriateness of the response considering the weight of what Paul has just written and what he wants to communicate. When I think of all of this, And the reality is, why is Paul so concerned with with who we are? Why is he so concerned that we know who we are? One of the reasons that I think Paul really, really wants us to know who we are, because how we see ourselves determines how we live and how we will treat other people. We're beginning a brand new series here this morning. It's called Relationships. 
We're talking about relationships and looking it out of the book of Ephesians. And it's not just about marriage. It's about how you live your life and how you interact with people. And if you want to have great relationships, the first shift that I want us to all take is this, is we have to begin to see ourselves as God sees us. Because how we see ourselves determines how we live and how we treat other people. If you don't love yourself, it's awfully hard to love other people. If you don't like yourself, if you're not kind to yourself, that's going to spill out over into your relationships. And really, here's one thing I just want you to know from the beginning of this series. Here's what we're going to focus on. You. You are only responsible for you. That's what Lauren tells our son all the time, Carson. I think that's good advice. You are only responsible for you. So we're not going to talk about other people's behavior. We're not going to talk about if they would change and if they would do this. No, no, we're just going to focus on us and how we see ourselves and then the implications of that over the course of the next four weeks. I say this, if you want great relationships, it starts with you. Nobody said amen, right? Because we just want other people to do the work. Some people are like, I'm just, I want great relationships, so I'm going to get rid of the ones I have and go get new ones. You ever realize that, look, at the, look back at your life and, and you, you switch relationships and you keep having a problem and then one day you wake up and you realize that you're the problem? That it's not other people? You know what I mean? Like, what's going on? None of these people I like. None of these people are good. I hate this job. I hate that job. And then, and then it takes you 30 years and you realize, maybe it's me. It's not maybe, it is. All right? We can just throw the maybe out. Life, the life we live, it's not other people's fault. Yes, people do things. Yes, people are ridiculous. Yes, people create difficult situations. But in the end, we ultimately have a responsibility to make a decision of how we're going to act and how we're going to respond and the kind of person that we're going to be. And this morning, all I want to do is ask this question is, do you know who you are? Do you really know who you are? Not who you want to be, not who you don't want to be, but do you know who you are? Thank you, Carson. That was my son. (laughs) Do you know who you are? That question is is something that we have to answer, and that's what Paul is laying out. I want to work backwards this morning. I'm not going to read the entire three chapters, first three chapters of Ephesians, but I want to answer this question of, of do when I think of all of this, I think of all of this, Paul's prayer. I want to ask, I want to go back and look at it, but before I do that, I just want to say what Paul is praying for. Paul is praying for four things here, essentially in these few verses. What he's praying for, number one, is this. He prays that we would be empowered by the strength of Jesus. We'd be empowered in our inner person by the strength of Jesus is number one. Number two, he's praying that we would have a deeper connection with Jesus, that our roots would grow deep into who Jesus is and what we have in him. Third, he says he prays that we would know, understand, and experience the love of God in every dimension, the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth breadth of God's love. God's love is four-dimensional. We would experience that. He says, although it's too full and too great to really know and understand, I just pray that you would. And fourth, he says, I pray that you would be made complete in Jesus, that you would have the fullness of Jesus. Basically, you can take Paul's prayer and distill it down to one thing. Paul's praying, I just want you to have as much of Jesus as humanly possible. Basically, it's what he's saying. I pray, when I think of all of this, I bow on my knees and I pray that you would know Jesus the way that I know Jesus. Because if you would know him, it would change your life. When you know him, it would infect and affect every part of who you are. And he asks that, basically he's asking that question, do you know who you are? And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he lays out two sources of identity. He talks about who we were and who we are. 
He says, who, in, in what capacity, you would say, who we were without Jesus and who we, were, who we are with Jesus. Who we were before Jesus and who we are because of Jesus. And this is really important, our identity in Christ. Who we are in Christ, that's what we have to get established on the inside of us. I love what Joyce Meyer says. She goes, you got to separate your who from your do, right? Who I am determines what I do. I am not what I do. My do does not determine who I am. It's the other way around. Who I am determines what I do. And who I am in Christ specifically determines how I think, how I respond, how I process my emotions, and how I treat other people. So what I want to do right now is I just want to talk a little bit about who we were before Jesus. Now, as I talk about this, you may not be excited, right? It may be an affront or an assault to you as you consider what Paul is saying. And he's saying this is how you were. This is how all humanity was apart from Jesus because of sin, right? Because of what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, there was something great that happened in humanity, it caused, it was a great consequence. Now, great, I don't mean like really good. I mean great as it relates to how destructive it truly was. And Paul lays this out. And he's laying out who we were so that he can show us who we are in Jesus and show us that there's nothing that we could have ever done to bridge the gap, right? Like, like if this were the chasm, the end of this rug, we're here, God is there, no amount of effort, no amount of works could a human do to be good enough for God. And Paul's going to show us that it doesn't matter that we tried to do anything, we couldn't do anything. It was that Jesus walked across the chasm to our side and brought us to the other side, carried us to the other side, and we did nothing to deserve it. We did nothing to qualify for it. And God says, I want to do this because I love you and I created you and I'm going to give you my grace. This is what Paul is laying out. This is what all of this Paul is considering. He's really considering the grace of God, and he just wants us to know it. Just wants us to know it and to experience it and understand it and to be made full and complete by it. So much so, and I exhaust this image, that he bows to his knee in prison while chained to a Roman officer to write it so it could be circulated. So he tells us who we were in Jesus, before Jesus. B, BJ, before Jesus, all right? Who we were. He says this. He lays out kind of four things of who we were. The first one he says is this. Before Jesus, we were dead in our sin. This is Ephesians chapter 2, right? If you want to take notes and you want to look. We were dead in our sin. What does that mean? It means that we had no ability to save ourselves. I mean, that sin was so encompassing, it separated us from God. It, 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 it became our nature, and no amount of any good work that we could ever do would make us spiritually alive. We were spiritually dead. See, that's the important thing about salvation. Salvation, when we talk about it, this gift from God and Jesus, it doesn't make good, bad people good. Salvation makes dead people live, okay? Salvation is life, and it is eternal life, right? The gift of God is eternal life. Paul is saying we were spiritually dead, meaning that there is no spiritual life in us. We cannot generate spiritual life. All the while, we have an understanding that there is God, that he exists, and we have a need for what we would say spirituality, but we don't have the ability to produce that and be good enough in our lives. So we were, we were dead in sin and in desperate need of a Savior. The second thing is this. He said that we were disobedient. 
What does that mean? It means that we could not obey God if we wanted to. We could, we could situationally and occasionally do the right thing, but that we are incapable of being 100% obedient 100% of the time. How many of you would say, I have never done anything wrong? But on the same token, how many of you would say, I'm a good person because my good outweighs my bad? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You would take an inventory of your life and say, well, the good outweighs the bad. Therefore, I'm good. And here's what the gospel says. Apart from Jesus, no matter how good you think you are, you are not good because the only one that is good is God. And the gospel is not about doing more good and less bad. The gospel is about we couldn't do enough good and Jesus is good and he's never been bad and he's never sinned and he gave us the gift of eternal life that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we're disobedient and incapable of being 100% obedient. Some people love the the Ten Commandments and I, I think they're great. I think they're pure and holy. And they say, I live up to this standard. No, you don't. You fail. The Ten Commandments was never put in place so that you could adhere to them and be good enough. It was put in place to show you that no matter how hard you try, you will fail. It's a taskmaster, as Paul would say in Galatians. No matter how hard you try, you'll fail. You can't live up to all of these all the time. The Bible would go so far as to say, even if you kept nine and you broke one, you're guilty of breaking the entire thing. It's all or nothing. It's not... It's not to do with a majority. It's not a percentage thing. It's all or nothing. We're disobedient. The third thing he says, I know you guys are really excited about how how this is going down. It's kind of depressing. For Jesus, you're depraved. Anybody use that word in your everyday vernacular? Depraved. I'm a depraved individual. No. Depraved just literally means morally bankrupt. And immoral. Well, I, I said it like this. We are given to pursuing our lustful desires. That's what depraved means. That as a human being, I will do whatever I, what, what makes me feel good. You ever found how you can justify anything that makes you feel good? You can make it feel right. You can make it seem right. But we are given in and of ourselves because of sin to pursue whatever makes us feel good. Why do you think the most popular way of thinking today is if it feels right, then it's good? Why do you think people love this idea that truth is relative? Well, if it's true for me and it's not true for you, that's okay. It's true for me. My truth can be greater than your truth. And if I disagree with your truth, then what do we do then? Well, it's okay. Truth is relative. There's no standard. There's nothing telling us what is good or what is bad. That is so great to the human heart, isn't it? That we get to be the definer and the author of truth and right and wrong. I am the legislator of that? Man, that is, that is wonderful. That is what the human heart craves apart from God. We crave it until we don't like it. And we're constantly changing the rules of the game to suit our desires, to suit our perspective. And we do that in, in every area of life. And in our culture, and in our world today, as, the, as kind of the bedrock and the foundation of what truth really is is continuing to erode, we see more and more of this. Because we don't believe that there is a lawgiver, that there is a, there is a God in heaven who has declared what is right and what is wrong. We've taken that into our own possession. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. That's what God says we will do, apart from him. That's what being depraved means. The fourth one is this. 
He says, we were without a hope and without a future. Apart from God, without a hope, without a future. We're disobedient. We're lost. We're dead in our sin. We just want to do what we want to do, and we'll do whatever we want to do at any extent or any cost or expense possible because we're trying to feed that, all culminating in the fact there's no hope and there's no future. You could look across the spectrum of history and see people that have pursued this this way of living, and almost in every case you can see the end of their life they regret. They find that pursuing what they thought was right and what their lustful desires were on their deathbed, no, 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 I'm empty, I'm broken, I don't, I, don't, I don't have anything. All the things that I thought would fulfill me and, and make me happy and make me successful and success, all that kind of stuff, it, it doesn't mean anything. Solomon, probably the, the wisest man in all of, the, all of Scripture. You read his, his book, Ecclesiastes. He wrote Proverbs, and you're like, dude, that's a wise guy. Read Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of wisdom there, too. He'll say, everything under the sun is meaningless. I had it all. Money, women, success building projects. I had it all, and it means nothing. Nothing fulfilled me but God. But God. We'll all come to that realization at one point or another. Paul is, he's laying this out. This is who we are. Really what Paul is saying, this is who I was. Paul makes this statement a couple times in his letters throughout the New Testament. He says, I was the chief of sinners. He said, Paul, he said, he told Timothy, he said, God came, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I'm the worst. Paul wrote in Romans, there is everything I want to do. I don't do the things I don't want to do. I do, oh, wretched man that I am. So Paul isn't just pointing the finger. Paul is saying, this, you got to see who I am. I, I killed Christians. I persecuted Christians. I hunted them down. Paul was like a terrorist, putting people in prison for believing Jesus. And now he finds himself, the tables completely turned, the roles reversed. He's chained to a Roman officer. Why? Because he believes in Jesus. And Paul says, I've I've had everything. I've had success. I've had loss. And he makes a statement, I have learned in whatever situation I am, therefore to be content. What's the contentment? Jesus. Paul had a profound experience with Jesus. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus revealed himself to him. He said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul went blind, had an amazing encounter came through that experience, believing in Jesus, and then God used Paul to write two-thirds of the New Testament, wrote more books of the Bible than any other man. But God chose a hardened, disobedient, depraved, spiritually dead, without a hope and future person to reveal to us the amazing grace of the gospel of Jesus. That's why Paul can say, when I think of all of this, and he gets through that list of things where you're like, oh, I feel horrible, to say, Now let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who you really are because of Jesus. And this is, to me, where it gets exciting. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we have to know who we are in Jesus. The first thing that Paul says is this. He says, you have been made alive in Jesus. You've been made alive. Now the thing we have to remember as I go through this list here is this. None of these things happen because an individual did anything except believe in Jesus. And even our belief in Jesus, we can't take credit for because it requires faith, and God gives us that faith to believe in Jesus. So everything I read on this list, we are receptors, we are recipients of. We did not initiate. We did not do. God did for us in Jesus. You were made alive. Other list, hey, you're spiritually dead. Hey, in Jesus, you are alive. What does that mean? You're a new creation. That's what Paul said. The old has gone and the new has come. 
You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You, when you believe in Jesus, when you accept the gift of salvation, you say, yes, I'm depraved, disobedient, spiritually dead. I'm just doing whatever I want to do. I don't have a hope in future. When you believe in Jesus, in that moment, you become a brand new person. The life and the power of Jesus Christ lives in you. You no longer are those things because Jesus has begun living on the inside of you. You are spiritually alive. You are alive for eternity. You're spiritually alive. You have been made alive. You have been resurrected. That's why Jesus had to go in the ground, right? Three days later, he is resurrected. He died and rose again. When we become a Christ follower, what happens is that sin nature, that depraved, disobedient, dead, hopeless sin nature goes into the grave, and what is resurrected out of the grave in our hearts is the life of Jesus. This is like Gospel 101. This is good stuff, right? This is the good news. Gospel 101. So you're made alive. Number two, he says this, you are loved. You are loved. We are loved with a love that is from everlasting to everlasting. A love that we can't even comprehend. A love that Paul says, the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of God's love. Though it is too vast to know, I pray that you would know and experience it to the fullest. You are loved. And it is a love from God that is unconditional. When Jesus was baptized by John. The baptism of Jesus took place before Jesus ever did anything. He hadn't done a miracle. He hadn't preached a sermon. He hadn't declared anything. He was a 30-year-old guy. John baptizes him, and what, what ensues in that experience is the heavens opening up, and here's what God says. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. What is God doing? God was declaring to Jesus and to everyone else, I'm pleased in my son, not because of his worth, not because of his value that he brings to the table, but because he's my son and I'm well pleased. He hadn't done anything yet. In the same way, that's what God does for you and I in salvation. He saved us and he says, hey, you are my daughter, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And God is well aware that we've done nothing to deserve it that we've been guilty, that we've, we've broken the laws of God, that we've sinned, that we've been depraved. God says, hey, you're my son and my daughter, and I love you, and I give you this a gift by grace. It's not about earning it. It's not about qualifying for it. It is an unconditional love. God loves you because he created you. God knew what he was getting before he got you. He, he knit you together in your mother's womb. He, he has intentionally created you. And he pursues us in Jesus. We don't pursue God. He pursues us. Well, I don't know how I feel about that. Look at Jesus coming to earth. That is God pursuing humanity. I say we don't find God. God finds us. Like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to get the one. Like the woman who lost the coin, she searches and finds for it. Like the father who was waiting, looking for his son to come home. God finds us in Jesus because he loves us. So I'm made alive. I'm loved. Here's number three. I'm kept. What does that mean? It means that we are retained or reserved for use in the future. Our position, we are retained for one's place. That means that God saved you because he has a plan and a purpose for you, that God doesn't just save you and then leave you and go somewhere else. See, I grew up in an environment that said Jesus can save you, but you better keep yourself saved. Don't be drinking, smoking, or chewing, or roaming with girls that do. All right? 
I couldn't go to movie theater, couldn't wear shorts, couldn't tie my jacket around my waist, couldn't play cards. You, they say, oh, maybe you can't go to a place that sells alcohol to eat dinner, but you can go buy gas where they sell alcohol, and you can go to the Cardinals game where they sell alcohol, but don't go to the restaurant that sells alcohol. I mean, just stupid stuff. All in an effort, I understood it, all in an effort to try to be holy. But we didn't realize that our holiness is Jesus. He's my wisdom, my righteousness, my holiness, and my redemption. It's a gift, nothing I earn. I'm incapable of that on my own. But God has declared me saved. That which saves you is what keeps you saved, and it's Jesus. And don't you for a second try to take credit for your salvation. Don't you for a second begin to boast that you give and you're a good person and you love people. Hey, that's all good stuff, but don't take credit for it because you can't. It's God in you, the Spirit of God in you, empowering you to be generous, empowering you to give, empowering you to be kind because he loves you. We don't take credit for it. That's when people get self-righteous and legalistic and get mean. They forgot who they are. Really, they forgot who they were and how Jesus saved you. He's, he keeps you in the palm of his hand because he's got a plan for you. He didn't just save you to save you. He saved you so that you could go and do miraculous things for him. When I say miraculous, I don't mean it has to be some big history-worthy story. I mean, he's just got a plan for your life, and he's got gifts and talents in you. That's why we push you to go to next steps, because we know there's more in you, because we want you to see who you are, who you are in Jesus. You're kept. He holds on to you. You're in the palm of his hand. He doesn't let go of you. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Fourth, he says this, we're members of God's family. Members of God's family. When you become a Christ follower, you become a member of his family, a brother and sister in Christ. See, I grew up in an environment we called everybody brother and sister. Anybody used to do that? Brother and sister. And I didn't understand it growing up, but now I do. It's language saying that we're part of the family of God. It kind of became ritualistic, and you're like, well, I don't know what to call you brother or sister, but hey, no, I'm a brother and sister in Christ. It's really interesting in Spanish, in the Christian community in Spanish, they still do that. They just, as a term, if you don't know somebody's name, or if you do, just call them hermano, means brother, or hermana, means sister. That's how they do it. We don't really do that anymore. It'd be kind of weird, but we're part of God's family. That's why I said this morning, when did the child dedication, if you're here, you believe in Jesus, we're a community, we're a family of believers, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been brought into the family of God by Jesus. That's why we're seated at the right hand of the Father next to Jesus. We're God's family. You're a member of God's family. And the last thing that Paul says, and this has great implications for us, is this. He said, you're a citizen of heaven. A citizen of heaven. What's that mean? That means this. You are a citizen of heaven before you are a citizen of America. You have an eternal citizenship in the family of God. Now, I know some of us think that America is equated with heaven, but it's not, right? It's an amazing country. I'm blessed to be born here, but I think one of the things we've done in America is conflated America with God. God loves America, but guess what? He loves China. He loves Sierra Leone. He loves Guatemala. He loves North Korea. He loves England. He loves Canada. He doesn't love Americans more than he loves any other person on the face of the earth, and that Mm, that gets me mad. We walk around with this spiritual arrogance that because we're American, God loves us more. No, he doesn't. He's blessed us, and that comes with a great responsibility to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Hey, I'm proud to be an American, but I'm more proud to be a Christ follower than anything else. 
That's what we have to get. That's why you read through the book of Hebrews and you see these guys saying, we had no home. Heaven was our home. The earth is not our home. Our home is not this world. Our home is heaven. We're citizens of heaven. That's why you've seen people throughout the years get up and leave their country, because America, because God has called them to go live somewhere else in the world and preach their gospel. Are they forsaking their country? No. They're realizing I'm a citizen of heaven, and wherever God calls me to go, I go. Because my citizenship is not in this world. I'm making a big deal out of it because if you're going to call yourself a citizen of heaven or come to that realization, then what you have to realize is this. There's a whole new set of rules. There's a whole new set of values that are so radically different from the broken world in which we live that we have to realize I'm going to live different. I am different. I got to be different. I got to think different. I got to act different. I got to talk different. I'm a citizen of heaven. What are those rules? Well, that's the next three weeks of the shifts that I want us to make. We'll talk about that over the course of the next three weeks. Considering the fact that we're citizens of heaven, we're loved, made alive, kept, members of God's family. Man, the implications for that for us are huge. You have to know who you are. That you're not all those things that God said you were before Jesus. If you are a Christ follower, when God looks at you, he sees his son. In the book of Colossians, Paul said that we are hidden in Christ. So as a Christ follower, I say that I'm righteous, I'm holy, I'm set apart, I'm approved, I'm accepted, I'm beloved, not because of anything that I've done, but because of Jesus. And when you know that, it changes who you are. It changes how you see people because you begin to value yourself. And if you value yourself, you will value other people. And you are valuing yourself on the basis of how God values you, not on how the world values you. So if you, if you accept all of those things that, that God says you are, and then you go to someone and you treat them really horribly, you are devaluing the image of Christ on the inside of you. Because anyone that doesn't believe in Jesus is not less valuable than you. They are of supreme value because... You were once them. And the love and the grace of Jesus Christ is extended out to you. And you begin to see people through the lens that God sees people, and that fundamentally changes your life. My challenge for you today is this, to know who you are. To know who you are. Because as a Christ follower, we are Christ followers at all times, regardless of anyone else's behavior. I'm a Christ follower at all times, regardless of how anyone else treats me or how anyone else says to me. What anyone else does, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a member of God's family, and I cannot separate myself from that. Do you know who you are? That's a profound question. That's a question that God took me on a journey through a number of years ago. Josh, I have to show you who you are. Because I'm going to do some things in your life. I'm going to put you in some positions. And if you don't know who you are, it's going to crush you. One of those positions was being the pastor of this church. If you don't know who you are, Josh, and you let people try to define you and you respond to people on the basis of their behavior, it'll crush you. No, no, no. This is who you are. You're accepted. You're loved. You're kept. You're a member of my family. And you're a citizen of heaven. And I've called you to live on a higher plane. I not only called you to do it, but I empowered you to do it. God never calls you to do something that he doesn't empower you to do. Do you know who you are? I want you to ask yourself that question. Do I know who I am? I'm going to pray for you in a minute, but just bow your heads.
Just let that question kind of sit in your, in your mind for a moment. Do I know who I am? Do I know who I am? And if you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I don't know who I am. But I want to know who I am in Jesus. I want to be made alive. I want to be loved. I want to be kept. I want to be a member of God's family. I want to, I want to have a hope and a future. If that's you this morning, you would recognize all the things that you would say, I, yeah, before Jesus, that's me. But I want Jesus. If that's you, I just want you to slip up your hand because I'm going to pray for you. Slip it up bold. I'm not going to have you come to the front. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now what I'm going to do, put your hands down. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you, everyone in the room can do this, to pray with me. But if you raise your hand, I want you to pray. Now there's not a, this uh, collection of words that are magically going to save you. It's just that you mean it in your heart. The Bible said, if I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, I will, I shall be saved. So I'm going to pray, and I just want you guys to pray with me. Dear Jesus, I thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for your grace. I acknowledge in this moment I'm far from you, but I need you. I receive your forgiveness, your love, and your grace. I give you my brokenness and my sin and my depravity. And I thank you. I'm a new creation. I'm made alive. I'm loved. I'm accepted. I'm a member of your family and a citizen of heaven. And you are Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can we give everyone a hand clap? Hand clap. Thank you.